All right, our study is uh, on the book of 1 Corinthians, and the uh, committee wondered if uh, I would take this session and um, especially try to um, uh, bring practical um, illustrations or teaching for our church life. Here at Weavertown, or the church that you attend, um, try to make it practical enough so that, yeah, we can uh, not only talk about the Corinthians, but to talk about church life in 2019. So I went through this uh, book and um, fairly easily found uh, five different uh, subjects that uh, I uh, picked out, and this is the way I have put them together. You had them in your uh, program as well. Um, I think on the programs I wrote something about brotherhood. I thought about it later. That's not very gender neutral. Um, I think we usually sort of understand what that means. So I put a couple of other words in there just to, just to um, I guess, broaden it. But um, the word commitment is something that comes to my mind. And um, I was encouraged to give at least a little bit of teaching on church membership and um, some of my thoughts in relation to that. Tomorrow evening, we'll talk about excommunication, and that'll be mostly from chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Tuesday evening, we'll talk about communion. Uh, there's chapter, uh, uh, chapter 11, and, and uh, chapters 10 and 11 have some uh, teaching there on communion. Wednesday, we'll talk about headship, and uh, Thursday evening, we'll talk about spiritual gifts. So I don't have very much time to cover those. I'm not going to try to exhaust them. Um, but my, my purpose is, um, my goal for teaching this session is to sharpen our thinking. And um, I may even, um, um, yeah, I'm hoping that I can make it sharp enough so that there's some discussion on this. And um, maybe in your small groups and places where you find yourself, uh, you can... Um, you can dabble in these, uh, this, these subjects and uh, sharpen it for yourself or in your family group. And um, yeah, we can, together we can learn and build on that. <clears throat> the book of 1 Corinthians was written, they believe, by Paul on uh, probably his second missionary journey. Uh, Acts chapter 18 is the story when he entered Corinth and he spent some time there, and they rather quickly had a, had a church. The city of Corinth was interesting in the sense that they were very educated. They were not, um, how should I say, um, redneck or hillbillyish or backwoodsy. They were kind of on the cusp of education and um, ability to uh, sort through things. So when Paul's message came, they were able to assimilate Paul's scholarly uh, approach. They also had men there like Apollos, who was probably one of the more eloquent and the, the, the more uh, charismatic teachers and preachers of, of, uh, of Paul's contemporaries. Uh, Peter spent time in Corinth and other teachers. Um, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 16, there are numerous names mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16, 
And that gives uh, credibility, I think, to the, the amount of people that they had there that were influential and that, um, that served well at, at, at Corinth. But the letter to 1 Corinthians, it's a little uncertain exactly when it was written, but probably not very long after the church was started. And as I studied that and was preparing for this the last months or so, I just found myself amazed at how modern um, the difficulties that they had here in Corinth are. Um, we have these discussions and these problems at Weavertown. We have them in our Lancaster County Anabaptist smorgasbord. We, we've, got, we've got these right here in our midst. It's, it is very contemporary. <clears throat> so, as I said, my goal is to kind of um, raise some of the questions or raise some of the issues. I'm going to give some of my thoughts. I'm not insisting in any way that I have it um, figured out or that I, in some way, have it cornered. But I, I, would, I, I am inviting you to engage in this, as I said, um, during our sessions and uh, maybe even especially after. If you are inclined, you can, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I'm willing to engage it with you. But if you want to uh, study on your own, that, that, would be, that would be good, or in the context of small groups or something that you're um, already involved in. <clears throat> I would appreciate if you would uh, prepare yourself for these sessions. I know that maybe tonight uh, you didn't have as much chance. Uh, maybe you actually did. But if, I would appreciate if you would come prepared to, um, um, yeah, you'll be able to receive more if you've done some homework uh, ahead of time. So uh, I would appreciate if you would um, do that uh, throughout this week. <clears throat> Brotherhood, commitment, membership. What is it? <clears throat> the word commitment is, I think, in a nutshell, is simply a willingness to give your time and energy to something that you believe in. Um, a commitment can be much more than that. It can be more involving than that. I think it can actually be a promise. Or a commitment can be a decision to do something. For instance, if I commit to run the Burden Hand 5K, I am, uh, that commitment requires activity, preparation, training. If I uh, make a commitment to... Um, a marriage, those of us who are married, that's something that we do verbally uh, at the marriage service, at the ceremony, and then we live that out over as many years as we have together. So commitment can take on different forms, but I, I basically see church membership and brotherhood as, as a commitment. I, I think it is just it's something that we enter into. It's something that we decide. It's something that we promise, even verbally. It, it motivates us to action. It motivates us to engage 
on a level that is deeper than just some um, family reunion or something like that. We, it's a higher level of, of, of uh, engagement that goes along with that. Some of the questions that I ask here at the beginning of this session are these. What do you think it means to be committed? What is the definition of commitment? I've, I've given you what mine, or the one that I um, came up with or studied. What are some ways that commitment is expressed? How is commitment demonstrated with words or with actions? How does a person who is fully committed to another person, I should maybe add, to another, act and respond to the other? If you're in a relationship where commitment is your focus, it changes how you speak. It changes how you react to what comes up. It changes how you respond to the other person. What happens when people are not committed to one another? And then, I guess, kind of the ultimate question, can a church, can a marriage, can a family be healthy if there is not commitment on part of the members? And why is that, or why not? At this time, I'm going to uh, go through the uh, section of the portions of 1 Corinthians that I've picked out um, that I think especially um, speak about brotherhood or about commitment. Um, so I'll be highlighting that, and then I'm going to be uh, talking about some things in relation to commitment. And then finally, I want to close with some teaching on membership and, uh, and that sort of thing. So we're going to have to keep it moving. And uh, again, I'm not trying to exhaust uh, all that there is to say on this subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, Paul kind of gives his opening comments in the book, and then he goes into verse 10 by saying, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that, that approach is very instructive. He appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ye speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. And he goes further on that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And he, he really chides them about their partisan spirit. Okay, I told you they had, they had some well-known charismatic teachers in their midst. Paul, of course, being one of them. Paul could go someplace and quickly have a following. The same could be said about Peter. And the little bit we know about Apollos, he was, he was even maybe been number one on that list. Um, he could just convince you and you would be inclined to follow him. So these Corinthians, the church at Corinth, we're quickly finding themselves aligning with certain ones of these teachers. And Paul kind of, and he doesn't mince words. He just goes in, the, in verse 1, he says, he uses the word carnal. In verse 3, carnal. In verse 4, carnal. And he goes on and talks about that. One of them says, I'm of Paul. 
Another one says, I'm of Apollos. Another one says, I'm of Peter. And he tries to make, he actually does make a very strong case and says that while there are different individuals, they are all part of a symmetrical work under Jesus Christ. I think that is something that we need to, to learn from and remind ourselves. It is the easiest thing in the world to be a part of a church or some other organization. And in most of our Anabaptist-type organizations, we have multiple people up top. In fact, I, I, I'm a very strong believer in the collaborative approach. I, I, I have my... Um, yeah, I have a great deal of skepticism of organizations where there's pretty much one, one person. And so we have these multiple individuals, and it's easy for us to say, well, that's my guy. And so we sort of sit with them, and we sort of follow with them, and when the church picnic is, we're sort of in that circle or, or not in that circle. Or, um, yeah, we, we have these... these it's, it's just human nature, I guess. But Paul calls it carnality and that's kind of makes it deeper and says that it's it's sinful chapter 6 verses 1 to 7 talk about the lawsuits that were going on among them instead of settling their conflicts between each other instead of settling their conflicts by engaging each other they went to the courts of that time to settle their conflicts. And he says in verse 8, you do wrong and defraud. That's interesting in the sense that when there's conflict and you don't settle with that person, you are defrauding the other person according to this context. You're not giving them a chance to, to work through it, to grow from it. Like we heard in our sermons, or actually our whole session, our whole service this morning had to do with this where we suffering, conflict, the things that come up in life are given to us to help us grow. And so when we don't settle with the other person, we're actually defrauding that person. We're withholding something from them that's good for them. And chapter 10, actually all of chapter 8, is, uh, is, is uh, the discussion about food sacrificed to idols. And... In the um, early church, there was uh, a mix of Jews and, and Greeks or Gentiles in their midst. And so they had discussions constantly about what was important. The Gentiles had a huge problem with food sacrificed to idols because they came from a background of idolatry. And so they said, I mean, you could go to the market and get day-old stuff, that's my... my terms, at least according to my imagination, you could go to market and get day-old stuff that you knew, food that you knew was sacrificed to idols, but you could get it cheap because it was, you know, no longer part of the, uh, the, the idol worship service. But this was offensive to the Greeks because, I mean, they came from that setting. They didn't want anything to do with idol worship. But the Jews said, you know, idolatry, some false god, some idol, that's nothing. I mean, let's get the food cheap and eat it. But on the other hand, the Jews had certain days and certain feasts and certain other things 
that they kept, that were important to them. And just like modern times, they looked at the other person as being weak, and they considered themselves strong. You know about that? I do. I felt that way. I've been in disagreements with people and conflict, relational stuff, and I, I feel like I've, I'm the strong person. I see them as weak. I see the other person's view as incomplete. And we can really run with that. And when there's church conflicts and church splits, I think you will always find this, this problem. In chapter 10, there's a, uh, the, especially the last section of, of this uh, chapter, verses 23 to 33, um, you again have this uh, same idea of what's permissible and what, what am I free to do because I'm a Christian. What kind of freedoms, what kind of liberties can I take? And he basically appeals to their conscience to, to value the good of the group, to place the good of the group on a higher, more important level than the good of their own desires. That's something that I need. And then in chapter 12, where he talks about the spiritual gifts, he goes into a fairly long uh, discourse in verses 12 to the end of the chapter, actually all the way through verse, or chapter 13, about how the spiritual gifts are not given to benefit the person having the spiritual gift. So you feel, all right, I have the spiritual gift of administration, or I have the spiritual gift of prophecy. And we get pretty happy with our gifts sometimes, and then we say, you know, it's, it's my gift. Actually, the spiritual gifts are given for the group, for the benefit of the group, not for my benefit. And Paul uses the illustration of how a body benefits from all the members. And in fact, if there were just one member, it wouldn't be a body. It's the, the whole that creates the body. And again, we have a lot to learn on this. And again, when there's church conflicts and church splits, you will find frequently that you have the gifts pitted against each other. And so there become two groups, and both of them are minus or absent portions of these spiritual gifts. They both suffer. They're both at a loss. If we could just get into our heads that we need each other's point of view, and we start to clan up, into groups, we're, we're not benefiting. We're not even really representing the true picture of what a body is or does. I'm going to save chapter 16 for just a little later on this evening, and uh, it looks like I'm going to have some very brief comments on chapter 16, but there are some uh, points of brotherhood and commitment that I want to point out um, there. <clears throat> now, as I teach this week, I am completely aware that there are things that happen and have happened in our past here at Weavertown and in the churches that we come from, that our backgrounds, for whatever reason, as Anabaptist group people are full of stories. And as we go through this week, you're going to think of stories. I know it. I did as I prepared for this. And we start to base our understanding of Scripture based on the abuses or the violations of some of these principles. And I would, I would just like to plead with you 
Let's try not to do that. Let's try not to think of those stories. The stories that I have in my mind are not edifying for me going forward. They do not push me to a stronger understanding of Scripture in and of themselves. So, when the subject of church is brought up, all of us have a different understanding, a different definition of church based on the experiences and the backgrounds that we come from. And that's, that's unfortunate, I think. But it is a reality. Um, some of the subjects that I'm going to be talking about this week, again, I'm completely aware of it. I've been around the block. I've experienced some of it myself. I've been a pastor long enough to have heard these stories and probably have participated in a few of them. I don't know. But the, the things that we're talking about cause pain and hurt, and that shapes our paradigm of church and what church is is and what church is for. And I see that as, as something to be overcome. It's sad. It's not what God intended for us. But we have to work with that. <clears throat> and in spite of the fact that there has been more teaching and more technology and uh, the advancements of time and growth in our circles, we have probably... Well, let me say it this way. We Anabaptist people have gotten really, really good with our hands. Just about any Mennonite community you go to, they have bulk food stores and shed builders and carpenters, and we're known for our skill. But I think we have gotten, we're more ill-prepared to settle conflicts than we have ever been. And it doesn't speak well for us at all. We have more churches and more splits and more little titles and whatever you want to place there. It's a blight on our story as I see it. To do a a study of the church is to do a study of unity. If you look at the, the teachings in the New Testament on church, you can be studying the doctrine of the church, but you're actually studying the doctrine of unity. In fact, in the real sense, according to the teachers of, teachings of Scripture, to speak of a divided church or to speak of a separated church is actually an oxymoron. There is no such thing. In 1 Corinthians, the church is likened to a human body. I've showed you that a little bit. The other popular term in the New Testament teachings when it talks about family or to talk about church is the illustration of a family and how a family functions. A family is never defined by a single individual. Individuals make up the family, but an individual by himself does not make a family, right? If there are no individuals, there are no families. But the family is usually comprised of, usually, a father and a mother and children, multiple children usually. The family is not intended to be isolated. At various times, the family includes extended family. And it's easy to see in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, how that fathers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts and cousins and grandchildren But no extended family constitutes the church. 
It doesn't matter how large the extended family is. There's no one family that constitutes church, the church. There's no one family that, com that comprises the human race. So with this background, I think we're going to just uh, move kind of quickly here again and talk about the family of God. Um, I, I want to just bring this in because of where I want to go with uh, uh, what I believe or what I feel about church membership. The family of God. The most basic part of the family of God correlates to what I just said. The individuals in that family. The family of God is made up of people, individuals. And then that corresponds, I think, to the different cells in the human body, which I'm not going to take the time to talk about. It's an amazing study in and of itself. Every individual in the family of God is looking for... Well, we usually say to bring glory and honor to God. That's sort of a cliche that we've gotten used to. I, I think we should usually always follow that with another question. How? We, we say, well, you know, my obligation is to bring glory and honor to God. I think we should just instinctively say how. That should be the automatic question when somebody says that or we say that. So every, individually, every individual that habitually says yes to Jesus Christ is a part of the body of Christ. But no individual is the church by himself. There is not a single individual that represents the church by himself. And I, I know it sounds kind of spiritual and it sounds kind of cool. We, say, we use these terms and we say, you know, I am the church. I have the church inside of me or something like that. We have, we have teachings that actually kind of embrace that. But just flipping to the human body here kind of quickly. All the different cells in our body... There are unique hand cells and finger cells and, and heart cells and brain cells. And yeah, I could go, they're all unique. And they do their job within the body. And then there's these rogue cells that go crazy and they float all over the place and they blend in with the healthy cells. Did you know we have a word for that, for those cells? Somebody tell me, what is the word? Cancer. cancer. They're called cancer cells. I find that very instructive. What constitutes the local church? Well, I think just kind of a couple of things, yeah, just basic things. A local church constitutes of regularly called meetings, all right, Sunday mornings, um, maybe some midweek services or evening services, that kind of thing. And the core group of, of a local church body, everybody should be Christians, and they should be baptized if they're a member. <clears throat> the membership is made up of those who are Christians. That is, they've made a profession of faith, They've been baptized. And again, you can look at the uh, illustrations of the early church, Romans chapter 10 and other places that uh, talks about that. And then there's a level of commitment that goes along with that. Commitment to one another. 
And I, I'm not insisting that Weavertown has this one cornered or that the way we do it is the only way to do it. But I, I certainly believe that a local church group, a local body, is going to have to have some kind of commitment to each other or it's going to, it's going to be completely dysfunctional. And there, there would be times, uh, maybe events especially, such as funerals or weddings or baptisms or those kinds of things where um, everybody's going to be needed. And um, if you're just there, do you have an obligation? What is your obligation? Those kinds of things. Uh, I'm, again, maybe I'm making that walk on all fours too much. But I, I think to have that commitment expressed and to have it known, it gives you a more clear obligation and responsibility. Now, church membership. Should you be a member of a local church? Uh, my answer, I think, as clear as possible is yes. I think you should. I think you should be a member of a, of a local church. Well, whether that's Weavertown or the church that you attend to. Attend. The, um, I have uh, just a few things that I've kept, uh, uh, that I've gathered just from uh, rather quickly uh, going through Scripture. Uh, direct evidence from the early church that there was such a thing as church membership. In Acts, you will see numerous times, especially over the first five or ten chapters, they kept numerical records. They had, there, there was numbers, even, you know, at one point, I think 5,000 or something like that. But they kept numerical records. In Acts chapter, uh, what is it, six or something like that, when they, when they ordained the deacons, they had a number of the widows. So, again, somebody within the organization or somehow they knew the numerical number. And because of that, because there was a need, they appointed deacons from among them. Okay, so who is them? They had, they had some sort of way of deciding whether a person was eligible or whether he was in in order to qualify as being a deacon. He needed to be from among them. And here's an interesting thing. They exercised church discipline. Now, if, if, if there are no if there's no such thing as church membership, how or to whom do you apply church discipline to? I guess there might be ways, but really, how? Or the practice of the ordinances would be another one. How do you practice the ordinances? By yourself. Or um, another one would be um, spiritual gifts. Again, we'll touch on this the other, uh, Friday, uh, Thursday evening. We'll talk about this. The spiritual gifts are actually given, I feel, to be practiced in the local body. The spiritual gifts are given to be used in the local body, primarily. <clears throat> there were leaders that were responsible to give an account of their leadership in the New Testament. The church was asked to submit to the leaders. They had an awareness of the members of the church. And here's where I want to break into 1 Corinthians 16. And a lot of Paul's epistles especially have this. When at the end of the, of the epistle, he usually gives a list of names. Romans is probably the strongest. Lots of names. And he's doing that because he knows 
individuals by name that were a part of the church. Some of them are named for what they did and what they contributed in the church. Some of them are named as leaders. There's women and men and, yeah, various groups of people that are, that are named in those, in those epistles, in the epistles. I find it very interesting that in some of them, and especially here in 1 Corinthians, the subject of the holy kiss is brought in. And I feel that it's something that, that, that our church needs to have a better understanding on, on the teaching of the holy kiss. Um, it's not very popular. But the holy kiss is designed, I think, to express an equality. I'm not above you. I'm on your level. It demonstrates commitment, I think. It's a, um, you could call it a, a visual of my commitment to you. Um, when you think of environments where kisses take place, in a marriage, for example, it expresses commitment to the other person. Uh, you are more likely to kiss your children than other people's children. You have a connection with them. And you demonstrate that by using that form of affection. Um, outside of that, yeah, it's probably sort of weird and inappropriate. But in that setting, maybe that gives us a little bit of instruction for, for, for that. At, yeah, some, sometime we ought to study that just a little more. What does it mean? What is the subject of the holy kiss and how does it, how does it, what's, what's it for, uh, how does it apply to our day today? Um, indirect evidences. I've already touched on these. I got ahead of myself. Indirect evidence from the New Testament that there was church membership. <clears throat> um, and these closing moments, I'm just going to name a few things, um, again, making it very practical. And if you're not from Weavertown, you can easily apply this to, to your church. <clears throat> Here at Weavertown, we don't necessarily peddle church membership like we do, like if you're um, like a rec center, would peddle membership to members or a grocery store or a country club or something. At Weavertown, we take church membership seriously, and we want our members to take membership seriously as well. And there are things that are expected from members at Weavertown. I think first and foremost, to become a member of Weavertown Church, you need to be a Christian. You need to have an expressed and lived, demonstrated faith in Jesus Christ. A person who habitually says yes to Christ in their, his or her life. I think all the members of Weavertown Church at some point should have been baptized as a demonstration in obedience to Scripture, and the commands of Scripture. A demonstration that Jesus died and rose and that, that power is working in your life like Romans 6 talks about. Um, we strongly encourage members to familiarize themselves with what is taught here at Weavertown, the statement of faith. If, if you're a person that's uh, looking to become a member at Weavertown and you uh, obviously disagree with the statement of faith, there's going to be plenty of times where um, teaching is done or preaching is done where you're, you're going to be uncomfortable. And for that reason, I think, I think you should agree with the statement of faith. Uh, furthermore, here at Weavertown, we have agreements. We call them brotherhood agreements is the term that we use. And 
Those are things that I think we place our understanding of those where we practice them for the good of the group, where we place the, the value and the good of the group on a higher level than our own. Um, I don't see it as much more than that, but I think it, it just creates an awareness, an understanding of, of where the other people are as a group. Um, and placing that on a higher level than my own um, thoughts on the given subject. Here at Weavertown, we don't have a written commitment. Maybe we should. Some churches do where you write out a commitment. It's some sort of generic form. I should have maybe brought some along. I actually have some from some other churches that you know that, that use this. Uh, two to three times a year, or maybe one to three times a year, you will be asked to sign your name and return this as a commitment, a letter of commitment. We are much looser than that here at Weavertown. But your commitment is to serve the church, to pray for the church, to give and receive correction, to read your Bible regularly, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, to respect authority within the church, to submit to church discipline if it's necessary, to attend worship services. And I could probably make a subject right here of itself. I'm not going to do much more than just lift that one out from among us. To attend the worship services, to attend the services that are planned, and of course, then there was typically something in about sharing the gospel as we go throughout the week. Uh, that's, that would be kind of typical for these kind of church commitment letters. Here at Weavertown, we expect members to dig in. We don't expect people to just come for the ride. We don't expect people to just attend Sunday morning and that's kind of it. We also expect members to plug in. Uh, I think, again, I'm lifting up church attendance. I think that's an obvious and easy way to do it. But there's also a lot of other activities that go on here at Weavertown Church. And there, are, um, there is a vision that Weavertown Church sort of uh, verbally or non-verbally has. And I think you should find, I think you should brace that vision and, and make it your own and, and develop that vision in your, in your individual life and in your family. <clears throat> Something that we have never done here at Weavertown, and actually as I was studying this some time ago, I came across this idea and it actually resonated with me real well, but I've never implemented it. I often talk about it sometimes, talk about it, but I was reading, actually it was on the internet, and there was this um, pastor that was writing about church membership, and he said that in their church, they do not receive any members that do not say how they are going to contribute. In other words, to become a member of the church, you have to say how you're going to contribute. Um, that can be attend sewing circles, or that can be um, helping with funerals. Or um, I presented this actually to one new member in our church some time ago, and he bought into that, and he said every year he's going to go to the prison crusade down in South Carolina. That's his way of contributing to the church. And I, I don't think he's missed any or maybe none, very few. As a, as, yeah, that's just his way of contributing. He contributes in a lot of other ways as well. But that's often how it goes. You see, you, buy in, you plug into one thing, and you're, you're going to be much, much more likely to see 
various and other needs. A couple of benefits uh, to being members at Weavertown. I, I think I'm just going to pass over that. I really want to get to this last part. Um, some time ago, I came across a story. I think it was actually in Val Yoder's teachings. Um, maybe even in his book, I Will Build My Church. And that's a very good book to study. And yeah, I would encourage you, if you have that book, or yeah, one way to prepare yourself for this week is to read that again or kind of flip through it. But he gives a story about two towns in northwestern Minnesota, way up, way up there, close to, close to the Canadian border. And there are mining towns. And one of the towns is called Hibbing, and the other one is called Tower. You can actually see them on the map. They're about 50 miles apart, not that far apart. But the resource that's mined there is iron, iron ore. And in Hibbing, they have large areas, huge fields, where iron ore is mined, and they're strip mined. In other words, the iron is so close to the surface that you just need a big bulldozer to kind of uh, tear up the surface, and then you can get iron. The problem with that iron is that it's very low quality, and you have to disturb lots and lots of surface to get anything very worthwhile. But in Tower, there are mines where iron ore comes out of the ground and it's so pure that you can actually weld on it, they say. The problem with the ore in tower is that it's about a quarter mile under the ground. And you know what that means. You need shafts, you need elevators, you need equipment, you need um, ways to get Ventilation, and it's just a lot more work and effort. And the story makes me ask some questions. In relation to church commitments and church life. It is, it is, it's just easy to stoop to the level of being on the surface where you have to go through a lot of different things, a lot of program, a lot of different things to get something worthwhile. But on the other hand, we almost don't have the effort and the commitment and the resources of our own to go for the good stuff, to go for the gold, to go for the pure stuff. And sometimes in going through the good stuff, you have to go through a lot of levels to get there, right? Too often, we just settle for the easy stuff. And before you get to the gold, you need to dig through the soil and the rocks. And sometimes those rocks give us fits. But if we stick with it, we'll get to the good stuff. And that's what I'd like to leave with you this evening. That level of commitment, I think, is something that I want to grow on, that we together can grow on. We need, we, we need to grow on it. We, we should grow in those ways. And my prayer is that God will help us. I didn't give you time to talk tonight. Maybe tomorrow evening we'll have um, um, more of that. I'll try to be a little more intentional on that tomorrow evening. Thank you for listening and your attention. Again, I hope this has been inspiring to you to motivate you to study on your own and to develop some of these ideas for yourself.